0: This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Today, our guest will be Indiana State Senator Liz Brown of Fort Wayne, who will update us on many health-related bills that were passed during this last session and signed into law in March of 2018. I think this is going to be fascinating. It's also going to be enjoyable because we will actually have a guest in studio. But first, let's take a look at some recent medical news that has to do with the federal government. The current Surgeon General of the United States actually hails from Indiana. His name is Jerome Adams, now Vice Admiral Jerome Adams. And he came out just a few weeks ago with an advisory. And the last time that the U.S. Surgeon General came out with an advisory was 13 years ago in 2005. And that's when there was a general warning put out to pregnant women not to drink alcohol. They, they don't come out with official advisories very often, right? No, they don't. So in a way, this is kind of a big deal. And this health advisory has to do with something most people have never heard of, naloxone, because of something almost everybody has heard of, the opioid addiction epidemic and overdose deaths. In fact, Vice Admiral Surgeon General Adams said that right now, 115 people a day are dying in this country because of opioid overdose. What's an opioid, Andrew?
1: Yeah, I I think it would be good for our listeners just to get a good definition. An opioid is a group of medicines that stems, at least originally, from the opium plant. Right. And some of the... The, the common, poppy. The poppies, that's right. Uh, some some of the common ones that folks may have heard of would be like morphine um, or Vicodin uh, or Norco. Those, those are the most common... And Percocet. Percocets, those types of things, which they're usually prescribed for pain uh, frequently after surgery, but especially in the past, and, and what has led to a great deal of the problem many people feel is an overprescription of these medications for pain that goes beyond the post-surgical time into a chronic pain scenario, yes. where people are taking these very powerful drugs, drugs that we use in anesthesia, to put people to sleep, literally, um, people taking them on a daily basis for pain. And so they're very effective for pain, but they also have a component of dependency because another member of that family that other people have heard of is heroin. Yes. And so they are all interrelated. And so even though it comes in a pill form, people can have a heroin-like dependency on this, this type of medication.
0: Yes, and, in, and one of the reasons it works in the body is because there are natural receptors for them because of a drug or chemical we make in our own body belonging to the family called endorphins. And, of course, those of us who are runners know all about runner's high, which is due to endorphins. The natural
1: endorphins, that's natural, right. Natural,
0: yes, but you can't overdose on those. So the advisory from the Surgeon General says, I, Surgeon General of the United States Public Health Service, am emphasizing the importance of the overdose reversing drug naloxone. For patients currently taking high dose opioids for a variety of reasons, he thinks that people in their immediate circle should carry naloxone. And the reason is because people who have been taking chronic and or high dose opioids are at highest risk for an opioid overdose. And this drug can save a
1: life. Andrew, what does a, an opioid overdose look like? Right, you know, one one of the, I guess, important things to understand about these medications is the first time you take one, it's gonna be very effective at relieving your pain. For, for example, you have say maybe a hundred that's not the real number but a certain number of these receptors in your body you take one of the pills and all the receptors are satisfied your pain is relieved you feel great unfortunately if you take it for a long time your body says man these receptors are all getting filled up there's extra stuff floating around we need to make more receptors and as a percentage the receptors are not filled so you feel more pain and so that requires a higher dose over time you take a higher and higher dose getting less pain relief but more side effects and as I mentioned we use this in anesthesia put people to sleep if you take too much the side effects are you stop breathing you're not awake alert you pass out at the wheel or you pass out you know at home and and uh, cessation of respiration and death and that's the key
0: reason that the Surgeon General wants people to have this is to prevent people from dying from their lungs stopping breathing
1: yes exactly So
0: these medicines are available in two different forms. There is an injectable form, and there is an inhaled form. And the inhaled form happens to be much more expensive than the injectable form. In fact, uh, due to the help of our secret shopper and producer, Andrea Serrani, we've learned that with a good RX coupon, you can get the inhaled version as cheap as $135. It goes by the brand name Narcan, and this is good for two doses. Or for about $21 on GoodRx, you can get the injectable form, which is one injection. Or you can get two injections for, for $40, much cheaper. Now, the state health commissioner in Indiana has written a prescription that's good for the whole state.
1: That's a pretty unique thing. We don't, we don't really have that for a lot of other medicines that I can think of off the top of my head. No,
0: no, we don't. So anybody is eligible to go in if you are in a close circle with somebody at high risk. So a close circle would be you have a family member who just went into a dependency treatment unit to try to get off of an addiction to opioids or you know somebody who has been on pain medication for years with opioids they're at high risk or you yourself might be coming off of this and they're recommending that people known to be trying to detoxify from this carry this with them especially if they feel
1: like you know their breathing's going downhill yes and and you know it's it's one of those things that just to put it in perspective the, the exact numbers vary state to state but many of us don't take opioids but the number of prescriptions prescribed usually it's about 80 or 90 per 100 people so that's incredible for for every one of us who doesn't take it somebody else is taking two or three prescriptions of these and so it's extremely serious it's extremely prevalent and these medications really can save a life especially you know many of us know folks who unfortunately are abusing these, or maybe they're using them appropriately, but they have other chronic medical conditions that compromise them. And it goes without saying also that this medication works for people who are are frank drug addicts with heroin. Um, It would work in heroin reversals as well. If you just
0: joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor, and today Andrew and I are discussing the new Surgeon General Advisory that more people carry doses of an overdose treatment for opioid addicted individuals. In 2016, data say that in Allen County, 68 people died of an opioid overdose. That's more than one person a week, and those numbers are going up. Now, on the Surgeon General's website, under who should carry the drug, it says active drug users, people who live with or love drug users, people already taking methadone, that's something to help people get off of an addiction, people coming out of treatment, Or those who know people at high risk of overdose. And even those who work in places (laughs) where there are public bathrooms or where drug users congregate.
1: Now, that's that's specific. That is very specific. That's like, go round up all the usual suspects. (laughs) Where where do they congregate? Where do they go? But that's the official wording.
0: (laughs) And then how do you know if someone is overdosing? And the main symptoms they talk about are, you know, Shortness of breath or not breathing, and their pupils will be pinpoint in size. You look at their eyes; you see all iris, the colored portion, and a very little black dot in the center.
1: Correct. And it it would be worth mentioning also that within the realm of this this new initiative is protections called Good Samaritan laws. Yes. Where basically you're you're not a physician or a medical pro- professional, but you do carry this and you find a time to administer it. You are protected from lawsuit because you are trying to effectively help this person with with reasonable common sense.
0: And now, if you know somebody who qualifies for this, you can go to virtually any pharmacy without a prescription and purchase this. You can purchase it at you know cost, and I would recommend getting the good RX coupon. Uh, but there are also places you can get it free. Uh, For instance, in Allen County, you can go to the health department. But even uh, the Allen County Public Library has split 75 doses of this among its 14 branches. New Haven EMS carries it. Fort Wayne and New Haven Police Department have it available. So you may be able to get some of this free. Also, our secret shopper, Andrea Serrani learned that... uh, Many doctors are giving a prescription for Narcan along with a prescription for an opioid. Were you aware of this, Andrew?
1: You know, I I was not, but I think that's a great idea. We we were always taught that when you prescribe an opioid, you always prescribe a stool softener because one uh, of the, sure. the <laughs> common things is constipation. But as, as we're getting, unfortunately, deeper and deeper into this opioid crisis, I think that's a very wise thing to do.
0: And, and a good thing is that naloxone, the... The medication is not addictive and really doesn't have any bad side effects. So if you give it to someone who's not overdosing, you are not going to harm them. So there is the, the cost-benefit ratio is enormously good.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a very unique drug that's tailored specifically to these overdoses. One thing that would be worth mentioning just clinically is that it only lasts for about 30 to 90 minutes. And this, this pr- can present a problem where... You know, if if a person, unfortunately, was overdosing and they were effectively rescued or resuscitated using this medication, it will probably wear off before the opioids will. And we see that a lot in the emergency departments and in the hospitals where a patient is effectively brought back from the brink of death with this medication. Uh, Sometimes, you know, if, if they are drug users, they wake up, they're very angry because they're immediately thrown into drug withdrawal. They're in a severe amount of pain and discomfort and psychological distress. They say, I'm out of here. But unfortunately, 30 to 90 minutes later, they're going to be overdosed again and stop breathing. So then it's good for people to carry two doses
0: with them. But as soon as they give the first dose, call 911. Yes. Get an ambulance there so they can get the help they need.
1: They really need, if, if this is ever administered, they really need to go immediately to the emergency department where they can be monitored until the medication, the opioid medication is out of their system.
0: And free naloxone kits can be requested by laypeople in the following counties in our listening area. Allen and Whitley, Wabash and Kosciuszko, Marshall, St. Joseph, and Elkhart County. Other counties might have the kits, but they're only available to first responders. Now for our trivia question of the day. That's Uh, not trivial. That's not trivial and a little respite from legislative news. True or false, adults, usually men with enlarged, chronically red noses, have this condition because they drink too much alcohol. And think of Former President Bill Clinton has this condition. Prince William of England has this condition. And some actors from yesteryear, W.C. Fields and Jimmy Durante, have this condition. So the question, adults, usually men with enlarged, chronically red noses, have the condition because they drink too much alcohol. We'll be right back with Senator Liz Brown. This is Dr. Doctor with your host, me, Dr. Tom McGovern, and my sidekick, Dr. Andrew Mullally. We are a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics and everyone else. And Andrew is going to introduce our special in studio guest.
1: Yes, today we are very excited to have Senator Liz Brown with us from Allen County. As many of our listeners know, the legislative session in Indiana varies year to year between a two-and-a-half-month session and a four-month session. Session just got out and there's been a lot of action that I think our listeners would like to know related to health care. So, Senator Brown, thank you so much for coming in thanks, to talk to us.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
1: We'd, we'd like to go through some of the bills. I, I know that you've had your hand in some of these. One of them that was very interesting to us uh, had to do with sunscreen. And, Tom, I know you you have a particular interest here as a dermatologist.
0: Uh, yes, I do. In fact, I didn't even know this uh, bill was up. And I'm a dermatologist. I spend 100% of my time operating on skin cancer. So I'm a, a big supporter of it. But this bill seems like there's there was no common sense before that we actually needed the bill to allow kids to carry sunscreen. How, how does something like that happen, Senator?
2: I know it is kind of funny. And when um, actually what happened is it's a lobbyist. And I think actually Dr. McGovern, they were the lobbyists for the Dermatology Association, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, people will come to us, whether it's constituents or lobbyists at the state house, to say, would you please carry forth this issue for us? It wasn't something I had thought of. Not an issue I had before me, although probably should have done that when my children were in school. But actually, as one legislator said, do we really need to do this? Is it it a thing? And as it turned (laughs) out, it it was a thing. I mean, some schools had rules that you had to go to a doctor and have a doctor's note, or you had to keep it in the nurse's office. And as you can imagine, it's that one size fits all, right? You know, they're worried about kids bringing in their own medicines or EpiPens or whatever. But unfortunately, they put sunscreen in the same category. And so... I I actually was kind of leery whether or not they would give it a hearing in committee thinking, you know, this is not that important. But the more we talked about it, the other legislators realized, yes, it is important. Early habits make a difference. And, you know, if you get the kids to start using it now when they're little. And as you know, uh, there is an increase in skin cancers. And... You know, as a mother, all I could say is, having done playground duty for years, if you don't let the kids have it right at their side, they're never – I mean, kids can barely put their coats on, right? Oh, yeah. They have 15 minutes. They want to get out there and play football or kickball or whatever. And so – we were successful in getting it passed, so it's hopefully there won't be any
0: problems. Non-spray sunscreen they can carry with them. They can't carry the yes, spray. Yes,
2: I hope we don't have to come back and. Revisit
0: <laughs> <that>. <laughs> oh my goodness! So you mentioned your children. You have seven children, correct? Yes. How does a mom of seven children have time, interest, and expertise to become the successful legislator that you are?
2: Well, obviously, um, I'm relatively new to this. So my children, actually, I just realized that this is the year. The oldest will turn thirty-five, and the youngest will turn twenty-five. So wow. they're a little bit, a little bit beyond my uh, needing constant, uh, <laughs> or maybe they do. But um, so mom's I didn't really never
1: worry less about their. Kids, yeah, you though, worry right?
2: more, but you can't do anything about it. That's <laughs> exactly right, and I don't have to drive. them. Um, but uh, I, I think the problem. I mean, I think for me, it, it wasn't a problem. I should say, I think that the point was, I, I was a stay-at-home mom. I mean, I am an attorney, but I didn't practice and. Um, When our youngest uh, was going to start high school and I didn't – literally, I started looking around for something a little more permanent. I used to be a substitute teacher. just That was really like a fill-in and was involved in community organizations. Mm -hmm. But started looking around and eventually ended up on city council and, I mean, not something I had planned. Some people have very detailed plans on how they're going to get into a political life and mine was – sort of a hopscotch sort of
0: approach. Well, that's that's wonderful. We're glad to have you here fighting on the side of the good angels.
1: <laughs> and, and I've got to say, too, having seen you in action down in Indy, you look like you were made for it. I, mean, um,
2: I must say I enjoy it tremendously.
1: It, it's I, I had a chance to watch you introduce the bill that we're going to talk about later that eventually became law regarding abortion and man, I just said she knows exactly what she's talking about and really handled the questions well. But I I guess one of the things that would be interesting a little bit for our listeners is that through the legislative process, you bring a bill forward and then you've really got to defend it. Right? Yes.
2: Yes. And that's the thing. So uh, getting back to the sunscreen, you know, I don't, I don't carry bills I don't believe in. I think some have more weight to them than others. And so You know, some people may not have that view. You know, they're they're sort of doing a favor. And I have to believe in the whatever it is the issue is, big or small. And because I'm I'm pretty passionate, as some of my fellow (laughs) legislators have pointed out, good, bad, and indifferent. And so (laughs) I'm going to go to the mat for something I believe in. And and I'm going to do a lot of research. And I want to understand the underlying issues. So... I don't want to waste the other legislators' time. I don't want to waste constituents' time if I'm not going to really appreciate and understand and go to bad for
0: what I want. Well, well, the next bill gives us a chance to address a listener question. This listener happens to be the executive director of of Redeemer Radio because uh, Cindy Black asked the question, what do you think, doctors, about cannabidiol? And the first time I saw the question, I said, what is cannabidiol? But now I know. Tell us about this bill dealing with cannabidiol.
2: Well, you know, this has been around a, a uh, probably since I've been there. I'm ending the first of my first term, for end of four years, and CBD oil um, has might have some me- medical benefits. I personally voted against the bill because I believe that really the proponents of it are using it as a gateway to legalizing marijuana. Right, and I don't, I don't think we're there yet, um, or medical marijuana. I think we need to do a lot of research. I think it has possibilities, and we did have a physician come and speak to the Senate Caucus about the uses of CBD oil, and apparently there is some without THC, which is the hallucinogenic piece Correct. of marijuana, and um, there is zero percent. CBD oil, I mean, 0% THC. This is not that. The bill we passed, in fact, I pointed out to the author of the bill that it's calling it, you know, THC free and it's not. So it's now the title of the bill is low THC. And I think that matters. I think what's people, there are people who came and testified who believed it had therapeutic effects, uh, whether it was for seizures or pain or things like that. And health food stores sell it. People were buying it online, which is a concern because you don't know right. if they're getting snake oil. My concern is is that there hasn't really been enough research, and I think I think the federal government needs to look into the use of medical marijuana, whatever it is, because I that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. But I always turn around and say, well, then tell me what does it look like. You know, I can tell you what dose. Well, I shouldn't tell you. I mean, you doctors can tell us what dose of aspirin we can take or medicine and, you know, the pill form or whatever. Medical marijuana just means what? I'm going to chew a gummy lace with, right. you know.
0: Well, and for our listeners, CBD or cannabidiol is the second most common chemical in cannabis sativa, the plant from which we get marijuana. Of course, the most common is THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, which I... Got to learn about in 7th grade drug class. We actually had
1: the class called Drugs in 7th grade. It's <laughs> classic UP for you. That's the
0: upper, but you bet, Shay. So uh,
1: I, I've got to say, too, in, in regard to the CBD oil, I've done a lot of research on it just because I have people asking me about it almost daily. And from a medical standpoint, we've got nothing. There's a handful of studies that don't show any significant benefit one way or the other. But the claims from everything from depression to anxiety, chronic pain, belly pain, really anything, and the folks who are really selling it um, are, are not medical people per se. It's, it's driven primarily from the, the supplement health food um, kind of sector of the market. And so I, I appreciate your position because coming from Michigan, we had medical marijuana, one of the earlier states to adopt it. They, they had a law passed, you had to have a little card. And I always like telling folks, you know, the average age of the card holders for this medical marijuana, chronic pain, cancer pain, terrible pain, 24 years old, Ugh. average age. So it I very much see experientially, how it is a stepping stone to legalization of marijuana. Um, and so I, I think it's important to keep things separate. Folks who want to use marijuana recreationally, let's call it what it is, and then if there are any medical benefits, we really have to have scientific data to back that up. Otherwise, you know, me- medicine without science is just witchcraft. You know, Right,
0: right. right. And, and are the <laughs> benefits from the THC or the cannabidiol? What I found online is perhaps, there's actually one prescription content for multiple sclerosis benefit that I could find online, mm-hmm. but everything else was was and, questionable. And
1: they do have a prescription THC that you can give to folks with cancer to hopefully help them gain weight and eat more, the the munchie effect. Yes. Uh, and some people do use it. I don't use it in my practice, but it, it's out there. So
0: we are, Doctor Doctor, if you just turned in talking with Senator Liz Brown about some health-related bills that just passed the Indiana legislature and was signed by our governor. Senator Brown, before we finish this segment, I'd like to ask a question. If you had a room full of doctors and could tell them anything you wanted them to know about the legislative process or legislators, what do you want us doctors to know? You really need,
2: and I, I know doctors don't want to do this and don't have the time, but you really need to advocate for yourselves what we do at the state house impacts health care obviously yes uh, significantly because we as a state are a health care provider and we fund it significantly and and we are a pass through of millions and millions of dollars and so we regulate it and it's painful for doctors to come down you did a great job Dr. Malali but it's painful for doctors to come down and speak for themselves and their practices and I know just enough to be dangerous sometimes, but it helps to have that voice. And you have advocates down there. Uh, Your medical society will, will represent you. But you need to, when there is an issue that you are made aware of, if you call your local state senator or state representative. I mean, you don't actually have to necessarily even go to the state house. But if you call them and voice your opinion, it does matter.
0: So they really care. Because I get the impression, it's just an impression, that if I call, oh, who is this? I, I don't care about them. They do care.
2: Yes. And, you know, most of us you can find in your own district, right? I mean, right. you can find us, frankly, in our campaign forms we file. You right. can find out where we live and everything. And so you really should reach out to them and just say, do you realize that this bill you passed how it's going to affect our practice in terms of seeing patients or being paid or you know uh, HIPAA violations or whatever kind of information the state requires you to share or whatever. I mean, we've had a lot of those conversations and and I reach out because you know, I'm on the health committee and a lot of those bills flow, flow, flow through, but sometimes when those bills come through, I hear a lot from the people who want the changes but the doctors are usually less they're more reticent to come forward and say hey could you not do this and um they need to do that because i think when legislators hear how how it's going to impact and work then they will understand that but they're only getting it from one side i mean we've had lots of yeah. conversations about the inspect bill
1: yeah.
2: uh, making doctors do mandatory yes. searches And when it first came down, I still think it's a little burdensome. I think it's a great idea to make sure we don't have people seeking opioids. We know we have a huge epidemic, for example. But uh, the first glance at the original type of bill was so cumbersome and was going to cover so many practices and unnecessarily, and not gonna solve the problem. But it looked good on paper. Yeah. And so that's that's the kind of thing where if a doctor doesn't say, do you realize how it's actually going to work in practice, nobody's going to
1: understand it. I, I was surprised, too, when I got to <clears throat> come down to India and talk to folks how ready everybody was to listen. They were excited to probably see a new face, and they appreciate you know, taking a day off, moving patients around and stuff. And so I really enjoyed it. And so I, I would echo that if, if there's people who are interested, especially as things come up. I, I think a lot of the elected representatives, there's so many things that come across their desk. It's hard to really take full understanding of everything. So that's that's our job to kind of tell them how it's going to affect us. Yes.
0: One of my fears in coming down has been that they'll change the meeting at the last day. I've lost a full slate of surgery patients that I have to reschedule. Don't things like that happen? No. Committee
2: hearings are set in stone. Ah, I mean, the times, the dates, and, you know, even those of us senators, if we have conflicts, we can't change them. I mean, they're – and they they put them out. Now, what they may do is limit testimony. So if you are going to come down and testify, if you know a bill is going to be called for a particular day for a hearing – some some legislators are better. In fact, they they know the regulars who will mm-hmm. come and testify, say if it's the tobacco bill, sure. you know, one way or the other, the, the people who are selling it, the people who want to stop people selling it, whatever. But if they know there's someone outside the community, outside of Indianapolis, and you put your name on a paper and say you want to speak, they most of the legislators do a good job of making sure our visitors, if you will – uh, are the ones who get to speak first. Great. I
1: learned that the hard way a few years ago. I went down, I was just waiting my turn. Then it was all over. and I didn't realize there was that paper bit, but I got and it And they this don't year. usually tell you. No, yes, they don't. You've to be looking. As the,
0: yeah, the insiders know. Thanks for the inside scoop. And don't miss more discussion of Indiana legislation signed this year, coming up right after the break. Dr. Doctor returns with... Dr. Tom McGovern, me, and at the other microphone, Dr. Andrew Mullally, who's going to introduce our next bill of interest that our guest in the studio here uh, brought forth into the Indiana Senate and Legislature.
1: Yes, Senate Bill 340. There's a lot of good work done this year uh, down in Indy, but I think this was definitely one of the crowning achievements. It was an expansive bill, and you were one of the primary co-authors. I got to see you introduce the bill. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what this did for us?
2: It is is it it is interesting. You know, unfortunately, uh, we have an increase in chemical abortions, and I think 25% now are, of abortions are done by taking those two pills. And so, of course, uh, we haven't kept up with it in terms of the legislature and laws to make sure that women are safe. I mean, obviously, we, I and we would prefer no woman to ever be in crisis that they felt the only choice was to have an abortion. But um, particularly, I think, with the chemical, there's a lots of unknowns. And, and as you so well described in your testimony, Dr. Malali, they go home and take this and, you know, They're on their own then, right? I mean, they're supposed to follow all the prescribers' rules and things like that. So really, in my opinion, uh, what the bill did was just make sure that women are well-informed about the consequences of what's going to happen when they take these two pills and that the doctor who is giving them the pills now certifies that they have informed them of what they were supposed to be you know, what the pharmaceutical company had told them to do in terms of what's going to happen and when to take it and, and also make them aware of the consequences of that. In addition to that, the bill also made sure that we have a good documentation of the uh, symptom or not symptoms, the,
1: uh, the complications.
2: complications, thank you, from abortions, not just surgical, but chemical because they're serious. And um, and actually, as you were there in the committee room during the testimony, the sad thing is, is a lot of the women testified to that who yeah. were in favor of abortion. Oh, we my goodness. They talked about their abortions and the anxiety they had and, you know, other complications that they had. One woman said she didn't want it – who had a surgical abortion didn't want the chemical abortion because her doctor didn't inform her and she was afraid she'd stay home and bleed to death. So, fortunately, that didn't happen to her. But they they sort of – uh, were was, testifying against themselves. It
1: was kind of incriminating. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting because several of the ladies, too, talked about even the psychological side effects that they suffered. The, the one lady said, I chose not to do the chemical abortion because it was clear that it was more dangerous. And then, you know, out of the, the other cheek, but oh, I, I'm my. against this, this bill. And so, right,
2: for telling women that there dangerous. are serious consequences when you take these pills. Yeah, I well, mean,
1: if, if you want to be pro-choice, Informed consent's a natural part of that. They can't make a choice if they don't know what they're talking about. It can't just be a signature on a paper. You really have to explain to the woman. So this is really, I think, at, at the baseline of it, not only about abortion, but just women's safety. right these are do-it-yourself abortion kits some folks even ordering them offline and so trying to manage this in some way cuz you know the the abortion industry most most of our listeners might not realize it's not regulated like the hospitals there's there's not a Jayco or another national organization that comes and mandatory inspections and make sure the tools are clean and things of that nature it's really up to you folks at the legislature so it's all the work that you guys are doing to make sure these women in crisis are actually safe
2: Right. And that's the irony, right? I mean, the the people who are pro-abortion talk about women's health, and yet they always, since I've been there, have pushed back on any sort of safety standards in abortion clinics, whether they're being inspected. So the little uh, nuances in the bill were to require. We had given the State Department of Health the ability to make inspections. Part of the bill is now they have to make inspections Correct. because, of course, we have found that some don't follow the law. And the same with reporting and things like that. They have to report, and there are consequences if the physicians don't report because, of course, uh, one of the abortion doctors we had in the state didn't report um, that he had done an abortion on a 13-year-old, which was despicable. So, And then another uh, sort of a, which, you know, didn't get all the press, I guess, because, you know, the pro-abortion groups kind of take it over sometimes, but the whole issue about safety are the baby boxes, you know, the safe haven and things like that, making sure women have are aware of that. And, you know, we've had, since the legislature ended, a couple of babies. One just this
0: week or last week right? in northwest uh, Indiana.
2: Which is amazing.
0: Yes. Thanks be to God that yes. baby has life. Uh, when you were talking about them not wanting informed consent even if they're pro-choice it reminded me of Nancy Pelosi with the Affordable Care Act saying we have to pass it to find out what's in it it's almost like we have to take the abortion pill to find out what it does instead of telling you ahead of time so there's that perverse consistency, I right,
2: guess. Right, right. I mean, one of the witnesses, if you'll recall, Dr. Mulally, was. she said she was a science teacher in high school and there was no science in the, any of this whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, and then the, I, I
1: think one, one of the council members pointed out, you know, the, the complications listed, possible complications in the bill, Came from the package insert of the per, the manufacturing company, and so they were required to put it in there because those were the complications they observed in the trials to get it FDA approved. Right, right. And so you know, it's I, I I thought it was very interesting to see the variety of people, the diverseness of people that came out and testified, and uh, the diverse the diversity of their scientific knowledge as well. And this afternoon, I just saw an article come out of Australia
0: where they've made the abortion pill available without visiting a physician, 100,000 women, and they touted the 95% success rate, but there were 50,000 or 5% serious adverse effects with it, but they downplayed that as unimportant, and who knows how many other mild side effects,
1: but without a prescription, wow.
2: I can't imagine.
1: It's scary. I I think that was a a huge achievement. I think it underscores, you know, one of the things that impressed me is the work that Indiana has done in recent years with the legislature. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but something maybe eight or ten years ago having 16,000 abortions a year and now it's below 8,000 a Mm -hmm. year. That's that's a major achievement. No nobody else in the entire country is having that kind of success, but it's because the the folks down in the legislature like yourself are taking care of these these people in crisis and so we're we're benefiting from that.
2: Yes, it is. That is good news.
0: This is Dr. Doctor, if you've just joined us, we are talking with Senator Liz Brown about Indiana legislation related to health that was passed during this 2018 session. Do you think that planned parenthood is Going to try to appeal anything with uh, Bill 340 that we're discussing
2: you know I haven't heard of a lawsuit yet, but um, th- they sue they sue on every single bill uh, that we file that has anything to do with this, and so that and the next bill you're going to discuss, I think the feticide one I'm not, not would not be surprised I mean it's kind of sad that um, even when it's something that really like I said, I think 340 was really more about giving information. Mm-hmm. There's no, unfortunately, I mean, of course, we'd always like to do more. But in that one, it was just information, not, not adding any layers of restrictions, if you will, to access. And um, even with that, um, I mean, as you saw firsthand, Dr. Malali, the Planned Parenthood was out in protest in, in full force. And so I would imagine that they will because they always do.
0: Could you tell our listeners about the other part of the bill, the baby boxes? What are they? Who can have them? How can they find out where they're located? How are they staffed?
2: I, you know, I, now I feel bad, but I know Monica Kelsey in Woodburn has been really the champion of that. And I think there's a website, I know now the State Department of Health will have that. Mm-hmm. I know there's one in Woodburn. And was it Mishawaka's fire station where they just had the save, I think? At the time of the bill, uh, there were two in the state. Yes. And part of this. Oh, bill- just
0: two baby boxes.
2: I think so. And part of this was to make sure the State Department of Health was charged a year ago with coming up with standards uh, ah. and they hadn't and so part of this was in a sense grandfathering them in um, so that they weren't they were still able to operate but I don't know if there have been any others so
0: do you have any idea if this movement's going to expand in Indiana
2: well actually I believe in testimony uh, she testified that many fire stations for example in this st- across the state are interested in doing this and that it's kind of ironic to me because there we have the safe haven law, and anybody could just walk into a hospital, a fire station, and give the baby up, no questions asked. But apparently, which is sad, that women are in crisis to such a degree that they want to do it anonymously. And so it does make sense then because fire stations typically are manned 24-7, and so – um,
0: that's the place.
2: Yeah, so that's the place to do it. And I and some hospitals might be interested as well. So
1: and initially it might sound like kind of a an odd idea, a baby box, but as you've already identified, we've had a couple babies who've been saved in this manner. So there's the, the efficacy is there.
0: Right. Right.
1: That's wonderful.
0: And, you know, and on the other uh, baby bill that you were mentioning about the the feticide bill. Tell us about that one.
2: Well, that was a bill, and actually I think it was Senator Freeman who carried it, if I'm not mistaken, who's um, from the Indianapolis area. And I think it actually came, and I I could be wrong, an experience he had, but, you know, if a a woman had been, um, I think, unfortunately, uh, attacked and murdered and she was pregnant. And so this adds to the crime um, that that baby, that unborn baby, there's also a cause of action for feticide, in addition to homicide. So, um, and you know what? It was surprising that we had some pro-choice legislators protest this bill because, uh, in in on the floor, because they're afraid that somehow it's going to open the door, which is just shocking to me. You know, they're always worried that it's going to be that next step and somehow abortion is going to be outlawed. So you just think, how could anybody not, be in favor of what a you know tr- tr- horrific tragedy for not just a young woman to lose her life, or maybe she doesn't lose her life, but her
0: baby, her baby loses does. her life. Yes. And
2: of course we would want to be able to charge the person who did that deliberately with the highest crime.
0: How do you think legislators like that live with the cognitive dissonance? Like if, if they were pregnant themselves as a woman or their wife was pregnant, they would call it a baby. But in other situations, they call it expendable. How,
2: how do they do that? I, I don't know. I don't know how you could stand up and argue against this bill. I mean, but we did have some. I was actually quite surprised about that.
1: I'm glad that it got passed. I think it's, yes. it's going to be uh, another key, key point, I think, to, to help protect those folks.
0: Yes. Well, well, we'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio after the break.
1: This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally on Redeemer Radio, a trustworthy medical information source for Catholics and everyone else. So the
0: medical trivia question was, true or false? Adults, usually men with enlarged, chronically red noses, have that condition because they drink too much alcohol.
1: Good question.
0: So looking up online, I saw, you know, I thought growing up, okay, W.C. Fields, Jimmy Durante, new generation. Well, I look online, and who has this condition but Bill Clinton and Prince William of England.
1: Bill Clinton doesn't drink too much alcohol. [2] Uh, I don't know. I've never never
0: (laughs) sat, eaten, and drank with him. But I do know that he and these others have large red noses. And it's a medical condition that's part of rosacea called rhinophyma. Rhino for nose. Phyma is this inflammatory reaction around all those oil glands. Well, the truth is they suffer from a medical condition called rosacea that is not due to drinking alcohol. So the the answer is false. But alcohol is related in that it is a vasodilator. It makes blood vessels bigger. And if you make blood vessels on the surface of the skin bigger, they look red. So that red nose looks even redder. But what's in there is a bunch of inflammatory cells reacting around all the oil glands that are in your nose. And there's a lot more oil glands in your nose than just about any other part of skin on your body. But most people with rosacea start out with easy flushing and blushing. Uh, then it might turn to persistent redness, red bumps and pimples, uh, so-called broken blood vessels, uh, but then a minority of people, and it's usually just men, uh, get this rhinophyma, this enlarged
1: nose. And you had mentioned that alcohol is kind of a trigger for it, but there's other triggers too, right?
0: There are, you know, hot weather, cold weather, windy days, uh, some people eating cheese, chocolate, nuts, coffee, all kinds of things, Uh, that can do that. Sunshine, these people turn red much more easily uh, in the sunlight. So oftentimes if they want to cover it up, they'll want to use a a makeup with a, a green tinted foundation because green and red kind of cancel each other out. Ah, I like that. And, and you know, treatment... You can yes. take that
1: one to the bank.
0: That's right. So I'll, I'll, next time you're here, I'll see you with a, a green yeah, foundation green on... Yeah, yeah Whatever.
1: If, if my wife ever sends me to pick out anything like that, I just know... I went, out, <laughs> I went out to pick out paint colors the other day. I can't even imagine trying to pick out the right makeup. I'm telling you.
0: Man. And moving right along, Andrew, I think in the hopper we have another Senate bill
1: see this is this I understand a little bit more (laughs) Senate, we got a couple bills left you know we're running out of time but there's so much done this year Senate Bill 65 instruction on human sexuality co-authored by uh, Senator Brown and this has to do with what kids learn in school regarding human sexuality
2: yes uh, I think Senator Cruz was the primary author and what was interesting about this is originally the bill was written that you had to opt in because there was a concern what are they teaching my kid in the school and I want to have control over it so I'm going to choose to opt in. Well, then, you know, we have these unintended consequences sometimes. And actually, Senator Travis Holdman, in his district just south of Allen County, has some abstinence-based uh, mm-hmm. Christian programs that go into the school system. They're allowed to go in. And they were afraid that they would be blocked that you know, if the if the opt in. So it was switched to an opt-out. Um, but, again, just as everything, the interesting is that the, the left protested it, and um, the original bill, they said it's too cumbersome for the teachers if it's opt-in, too much paperwork. And then the final bill was you opt-out, but the parents get two times, and so there's double the paperwork, but um, they didn't <laughs> protest that. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, uh, but so, you know, you have a chance – the parent will have a chance uh, to review the materials, and if they're fine – nothing happens, and if they say, nope, I don't want my kid in the classroom, um, then they're not there, which I think is good. I think parents need to be involved and engaged and hopefully...
1: Oh yeah, I think that's a great thing for parental rights because I know even just thinking about when I was going through high school, my my folks didn't really have a chance to review the curriculum. And then they had to decide, you know, what do we even do with this? Who knows what they're going to teach? Right. So, what did they tell you today? Oh, yeah, exactly. you come out with a weird
2: look on your face. <laughs> Statistically, people
1: don't do awesome with sexual education in, in our schools. <laughs> so I I was so happy that yourself and, and Senator Holdman, another very pro-life legislator, brought that forward. Uh, and, you know, this – Brings up something from my past in medical school.
0: My second year of medical school, our first week—the four days after Labor Day—were a so-called course in sexual medicine. It was the first year Mayo Clinic had ever done it. it was uh, my year, and uh, the first two days were two days of watching every kind of perverse movie you can think of to become quote desensitized. I was the only member of my class who opted out. There wasn't an option to opt out. The psychiatrist in charge of it was ticked off at me. And I had to write this long paper about about something. And then the next two days were, you know, clinical stuff that actually made sense. But I can't imagine even with adults, they're trying to get those images in your mind. And I explained to my dean, who was a psychiatrist, I don't want those images in my mind the rest of my life. And he's like, yeah, you're right. But only one student the next year and only one student the next year opted out. So
1: So this is what your doctors went through in training. Yes.
0: If- now, fortunately, I've heard from uh, friends at Mayo Clinic now that they have done away with that course. But just think of the hundreds of physicians who were forced to do that. And that's going to make me more sensitive to somebody. So it's at all levels. It's just not
1: in our elementary, junior, and senior high schools well i'm I'm glad that came through and and was passed yes. and and that brings us actually to to the last bill that I kind of wanted to bring up today, House bill eleven nineteen regarding the post law in CPR. and this it it struck me as kind of a reorganization of some of the post information, but I, I think it's an opportunity to talk about post in general. Um, senator brown, what did what did this law do?
2: I think it just for us, it just changed the the priority of who can make who's can be part of the decision making process and it is an issue sometimes when you have a an individual maybe they're not married they don't have children so they're not able you know mm-hmm. maybe they were in a car accident so who can the hospital system or the physician or the healthcare provider who can they legally turn to to say what what should we do what can we do so you know, what did it change the different people in the priority, whether it's a grandparent or, you know, an adult who doesn't have, just has siblings, just to allow the hospital to understand who's allowed to be sort of in the room, so to speak.
1: So when you have people who are disagreeing about end-of-life decisions, it kind of gave a clear order of who who gets to make that decision.
0: Right. Because the Catholic position on this is ideally every person has a healthcare power of attorney,
1: somebody who can make decisions in real time, for what's going on. Yeah, and I I think uh, that's that's an opportunity in the future. I know but before you got into the Senate, I believe Senator Brown, they passed the original post law and I, I think there is there's some room for improvement. I, I was happy this year one of the things I saw is that you can actually do away with a post form, which there wasn't a mechanism for in the past and you know, one of my my critiques just clinically is the folks filling this out, they're they're not near death. They're, they're in a usually stable and, you know, downward trending state in their life and their disease process. But when it gets down to the moment of, of death or even before that, you know, something that could lead to death, we really have to be able to make kind of game time decisions based on the information we have. So I, I was happy to see that people are still thinking about it. I think it gives us a lot of opportunity in the future to hopefully uh, affect positive change there.
2: Well, and if if you have information on how we can improve that, I think that would be important. I mean, as I said, I'm not that familiar with, I know, having served on a hospital ethics committee, it is an issue sometimes when there's no one around to make that decision and the patient isn't capable, yes. uh, particularly when they're unconscious. And decisions have to be made, and, and sometimes they might be so extraordinary that that might be something if the patient had made that. But it is it is amazing, I mean, how many of us don't have those forms yes, uh, ahead of time. So I think maybe that is also something we as a legislature can look at and how we can get people to incentivize them to make those forms without burdensing them, the health care providers, or something like that. And,
1: and even giving an option too for, uh, there is a mechanism in place for a durable power of attorney, but even incorporating that maybe as an alternative to polls on the same form, Um, In in my practice, one of the things I really encourage folks is to have somebody, if you can't speak for yourself, who do you want me to turn to? And if they can tell me that with confidence, that's the best thing. And then a general idea, kind of a binary decision, are we full speed ahead or something less than full speed ahead in regard to resuscitation? That's really the best information I need, whereas the, the post form goes into... Would you like us to try antibiotics if we ever think you might need them? Or you probably don't even want antibiotics. And, you know, unfortunately, I think some people who are helping the patients fill these out might not have the best interest at heart. Maybe cost control. Insurance companies don't have the best interest for for the patients or, or the physicians. So I... I think there's hopefully an opportunity even in the future to improve. You know,
2: that's a great idea. We could do that. We could amend this next year and add that instead of just having post, you have that other option of a durable power of attorney. You have to have something. Um, And then the hospitals obviously have the electronic record system to do that. But it doesn't have to only be this one form if we could come up with something else. Because you're right. People have no idea, you know.
0: What's going to happen What's down the road. What's going to
2: happen. And, and they may want to take their chances and, you know, try that experimental treatment and do something. And But, of course, when you're young and healthy, you think it all looks very dire. So, sure, you'll sign it.
0: Uh, you know, I like what you've suggested here. I have the image that when someone's admitted to the hospital, they can have someone there who has the power of a notary that they ask you, is there somebody that you want to be your health care power of attorney? and you say, yes, it's this person, you fill it in, they notarize it, and there
1: you go. Well, and, and even you mentioned the notary. That was that was one thing in this law that I, I think could have been a little bit better is that they've expanded the people who can sign the forms. From In the past, it had to be a physician. I was always getting asked to sign these. Most of them I didn't feel comfortable signing unless it, that it was clear that they knew what they were talking about. Um, but now they've actually expanded it to, to nurse specialists, uh, which I don't know what that is. But I, th- I think it could, unfortunately, be an opportunity for people to, to be specialized in helping cost control because, really, the, the goal of POST is that you don't have to do it every time you come in the hospital. It travels with the patient, right. which would definitely help the patient. But, unfortunately, I, th- I think a lot of the, the motivation is that, okay, we've already made your decision. You don't want any more care. We're going to just wash our hands of this.
0: Well, Senator Brown, thanks for opening the door on uh, perhaps something we can do to make Hoosiers even safer health-wise. Really appreciate your open mind on this. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate you being that bulldog for life
1: uh, down in Indianapolis. We really enjoy the update, and we'd we'd love to have you back in the future. I know I've been impressed to learn how much gets done every single year to to help people of faith, and especially pro-life people. So we really appreciate you coming in to explain it with
2: us. Thank you. It's never a burden. I enjoy it immensely.
1: Well, thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, signing off until next time. So please remember that your medical decisions today can truly have profound consequences. So please choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Next week's Dr. Doctor will feature Dr. McGovern's interview with representatives from Caritas Baby Hospital all the way from Bethlehem. For all the latest on the show, visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.